message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. So if you guys have a Bible, you can uh, open it up to both John chapter 11 and Luke chapter 10. And as you're doing that, uh, let me update you on what's going on. We are back in the Heart Renovation series. Um, We are, man, probably a little bit over halfway done. We are over halfway done. And wanted to kind of bring us up to speed because some of you guys are new to our church the past um, couple of weeks, last couple of months. And so I just wanted to kind of go over what Heart Renovation is all about. And the idea is this. When we look at the scriptures, we, we see that Jesus is interested in a moment. He's interested in salvation, but it's not all he's interested in. There is this desire that we see in the heart of God for your heart to be transformed, not only to be made new, but then for that new heart to be formed into his image. And like any process of renovation, there are steps there, is, um, there are different things that are happening, and it's not like all of a sudden you pray to prayer and you're like, just like Jesus. Wouldn't that be nice, right? Just like, oh my gosh, I became a Christian today and I never sin again. Or, you know, I'm, I'm totally unselfish. Uh, but the reality is, and, and uh, kind of the old word for that is sanctification. Um, it's a part of a, a process called discipleship. I think a better word for that is apprenticeship. Um, kind of a new terminology around this idea of spiritual formation. So whatever term you want to use, the idea is that we are being shaped into God's image, and he has a process for that. And so uh, we're going to be looking at the process of renovation. There should be about six things that are on your screen. Number one, every renovation should, not all of them do, but should start with a design in mind. There's a goal for this renovation. I was, I was talking to the sweet couple who are renovating a house in Oceanside this morning, and they're like, yeah, we didn't start with the design, and now we're just so in over our heads. And, and so I think this, it's important for us to know that God's just not doing random things. There's a purpose and an end goal, and ultimately, that's for you to look like Jesus. That's a design. But after there's a design set in place, the very first thing that happens in any renovation is demo. There's things that need to be moved, removed, changed. And so we spent the month of February talking about demo. We talked about sin, suffering, different things in our life that we kind of like to cover up, but God is interested in getting into and through his grace and love, beginning to change those spaces. Um, Once we allow God to have lordship over the design of our hearts, we've let him renovate our hearts, we, we really enter into what we call discipleship. And that can be summed up in this idea of practicing the way of Jesus, right? It's this apprenticeship. We're practicing that way. And so there's three things. Our foundation, which is what we're going to be ending tonight, talking about the foundation, is all about being with Jesus. It's not a performance. It's not an act. It's simply being with. It's a relational proximity, intimate type of idea that Jesus wants just to be with us and us with him. That's our foundation. That's the core of what we're trying to do. We're going to be talking about them tonight. Number two is after the foundation is set and laid, then there begins to be framing. This is the stuff that if you've ever driven by a construction site and you see it's like a bunch of equipment, all of a sudden you start seeing the framing go up, you start to be like, hey, I I, I kind of see what's happening there. This is the part of our apprenticeship to Jesus when we begin to start being transformed. We become like Jesus. And we're going to be getting that in the next week or two. And what does that process look like? How do we actually change? Now that we've learned to be with Jesus, 
And after the foundation, it becomes the functionality. It's the doors, the windows, the hinges, the paint, the carpet. It's the things that we see. And that's kind of defined by become or doing what Jesus did. This is our actions, our behaviors. This is what people see in us. And I think a lot of times people jump right to that, right? You buy the bracelet, do what Jesus did, right? What would Jesus do? You, you immediately, we want behavior. But the reality is that's not really the most important or the first thing that we should be doing. It should flow out of relationship and transformation. Our behavior will begin to follow it's important. We don't, we don't want to remove behavior because Jesus talks about, like, let your light shine before men so that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your God in heaven. Like, there's something about how we act like Jesus that draws attention not to ourselves but to the Lord. And lastly, once that's up, we're going to be ending our series with this idea of home. How do we let our Holy Spirit be a place, sorry, how do we let our heart be a place for the Holy Spirit to dwell and call home and move into that space? And so that's an overview of the series that we're in. But like I said tonight, we are specifically talking about being with Jesus and ending that part of our conversation. And my hope tonight is this we would all leave here not with a finished product, like we've all mastered being with Jesus, because this will take our whole lives, but with this sense of we know it's important. We're chasing it. We want to, to have relationship, proximity, intimacy with the God that we love and, and serve and worship. And so we're going to be doing that kind of in a unique way tonight. Uh, we're going to be reading a lot of text. So uh, we're going to be reading most of John chapter 11 into John chapter 12. And then we're going to be reading a little bit of Luke chapter 10. And so I hope you brought your reading glasses and your attention span. You had some good coffee or something before. Because uh, we're going to be going through this. But here's, here's a little bit of a different way to kind of read this. As we're reading, I want you to pay attention to, to the characters in the story. So I want, there's, there's three primary characters besides Jesus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And I want you to take note their interactions with Jesus, being with Jesus or not, and Jesus' presence to them. And then we're going to be kind of uh, unpacking what does that mean? What is the beauty in being with Jesus? And so Luke chapter 11, verse, starting in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. What a great title, right? He puts that on a business card. The one that Jesus loves. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now listen to verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Kind of a strange response. Jesus loves these people. He stops and does not move. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Skip down to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Bethany was, now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Uh, So that's one, one interaction. Verse 28, after she said this, she went back and called to her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same sentence that Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35 is this short and famous verse. It says, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. There it is again. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for their benefit, of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What an epic story. But it doesn't end there. Listen to what happens next in chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. I mean, how appropriate is that? You raised him from the dead, I'm going to make you pizza. Like, it's just this natural kind of trade. Like, here you go. Like, this is, we're going to make you a nice dinner. And um, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it here, he just gets mad. He gets upset. He's like, what are you doing? This, could, this is a year's worth of salary. You could have sold this and given the money to the poor. And we know Judas was not interested in the poor. He was stealing money. Um, and so skipping down to verse 7, says, Jesus looks at Judas and says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. <laughs> Isn't that kind of a funny thing? You raised from the dead, I'm going to kill you again. It's like, it doesn't work. Um, anyways, for an account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Okay, so that's, that's one story. 
Lazarus raises from the dead. There's a party thrown in, in Jesus' honor. Uh, the same party is, is recorded in Luke's biography of Jesus' life, but it's, it's done in a different way. Listen to what Luke records in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary and sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left, has left me to the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not taken away from her. There's a lot going on here. We just read a lot of text, and we're going to be spending some time, but there's a few things that I want us to take note of. Because as the story ends, we, we kind of see this insight into the heart of God. Is that there's something that Mary did at the very end that would have been absolutely abnormal, actually repulsive in that culture. And Jesus looks to Martha and says something. He said, there's, there's a few things that are needed. And he almost stops and goes, like, no, it's one. Mary found it out. This is it. Being with me is it. This is the most important thing. And which would if, there's so much about the story that is just absolutely baffling, would have been baffling to the original audience, and is still kind of baffling to us. But, but three things that we can take from, from this text. Number one, being with Jesus is costly to you. To be with Jesus, to truly find yourself at his feet, just being with him will cost you. Number two, being with Jesus is necessary. It's necessary for you. And lastly, being with Jesus is unique to who you are. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But number one, being with Jesus is costly to you. So there's a few, few things that are going on here. Number one, this would have cost her socially, uh, socially and relationally. Uh, because of uh, kind of the cultural norms of that day, women were not allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi. Um, a matter of fact, to be at the actual foot of a rabbi would have been taking the place as the ultimate disciple, the number one. So Mary finds herself in this place, not only just of learning, but of, of almost this place of like, wow, you really, you think you belong here? Women aren't even allowed to sit where you're sitting, and you have placed yourself there. And then she goes and she's wiping his feet with her hair, and that would have been an absolutely provocative and horrendous act because the hair of a woman would have been her glory. So she's, she's taking her glory to the worst, dirtiest part of Jesus and is wiping the dirt off of it. And then it goes a step further because in this process, according to John's gospel, she doesn't just sit at his feet, wipe, her, wipe his feet with her hair, but then she goes and takes this, this ointment of, of, of pure nard, which would have been this expensive perfume, which would have been used for two things. Number one, you would have saved it for the burial of your most prominent figure of your family, probably her father. So this would have been the most expensive thing she owned by far. And so you would have saved it for the most the most. Uh, important, significant figure in your family, or you could have sold that as a bride price to get married. So think about what Mary's doing right here in this moment. 
She's so overwhelmed and thankful for what, she, what Jesus has done, not only in her, but in raising her brother from the dead, that her only response she can think of doing is taking what would have given her the most security for her future and throws it at his feet. What would have given her the most honor for her family and throws it at his feet. I mean, the, the cost for Mary to sit at the feet of Jesus is, is astronomical. We couldn't even fathom. We, we honestly could not imagine what exactly is going on in this moment. And so let's not, let's not romanticize, like, oh, Mary gets it. Like, I'm totally a Mary. I'm not a Martha. I love sitting at Jesus' feet. No, no, no. This is like, this is absolute. This is just almost repulsive how much this would have cost this woman just to have a moment at the feet of Jesus. But this is what I would like for us to point out tonight. Being with Jesus is costly. It will cost your schedule, your calendar, your priorities, your values. Being with Jesus does not just happen. But although being with Jesus is costly, not being with Jesus is more. When we choose to not be with Jesus, it actually costs us significantly more than the cost it takes to be with him. Not only do we pay, our family pays, our work pays, our church pays, when we choose to be people who have other things to do. And this is how Dallas Willard sums it up. He talks about the cost of non-discipleship, the cost of not being with Jesus. He says, non-discipleship costs abiding peace. It costs a life penetrated throughout by love. Faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance of good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but, I love this, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibility and as a life on the highest plane. And Dallas Willard just says this so brilliantly. He says, listen, it costs to be with Jesus, but when we choose not to be with Jesus, it costs us so much more. And, and I think about this, how Jesus, in talking about discipleship, in, in talking about what it means to follow him and practice his way. This is what he says in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a paradoxical sentence. Yokes aren't easy. Burdens aren't light. Burdens are burdens. Yokes are hard. It means work. And Jesus says, listen, he uses these, these ideas of burdens and yokes. And he says, this, these are costly words. He says, listen, when you come and yoke with me, when you take up my burden, it, it may look like it's costing you, but actually you're finding rest and life. This is why, and guys, I hope, I hope you hear me out, and you might have been like, can we move on with the series? No, we can't. Until, until we all agree that we understand that this is the most important element of walking with Jesus 
It's not what you do, how you perform, what you look like on the outside. It is a conscious living into being in relationship with him, sitting at his feet. And the world will not get it. You might not even be able to naturally do it at first, but when we choose to step into it, we'll actually find that the cost of not doing it is always more. Which leads to our second point, that being with Jesus is necessary to you. It's a value. Do you ever notice how cost equates to value? When something costs you something, it increases its value in your heart. Um, I have two guitars at my house. I have a $100 Epiphone guitar. I'm pretty sure it's made out of plastic. And I love it. It's a great guitar. I gave it to Jen, I think, when we were dating. And so it's kind of, it's, it's a great gift because now I don't have to ever leave it. You know, so, but it's the guitar we let Augustine play. And by play, I mean like step on and like mess around with. And then I have this, this gift that was given to me after I graduated from high school. And it's this like, it's this Taylor guitar, 710, one-of-a-kind, full-bodied guitar. And I love it. And I don't even, August, I don't even let Augustine look at it right? Like, he's dangerous. So I'm just like, let's just keep that away. Both are guitars. Both play music. I can write songs on both. But there's something about the cost of one that increases its value in my heart. And I think for us to understand that in order for us to to increase the necessity and the value of being with Jesus, we have to be okay with the cost. We have to begin to start saying, you know what, Jesus, this is going to become a priority so that the value and the necessity that goes up in my heart um, which leads us to our, um, our, last, our last point this morning, or this morning, tonight, is being with Jesus is unique to you. Um, we're going to have some fun here in just a, a moment. But when, when we are reading through these texts, something I've never really focused on before that has, was kind of blown my mind, is Jesus interacts with Mary, different than he interacts with Martha, different than how he interacts with Lazarus. He interacts with them all very much how they approach him. He meets them how they're doing, which is something that I, I, looking back, I'm like, man, I wish I would have spent more time focusing on this. But being with Jesus is not only about how we posture ourselves, but it's about receiving the fact that Jesus is the one who came the distance in the first place. He has come to us. Oh, I mean, ultimately, through the incarnation, he became a human being. This is how much he wants to be with us. But it's not just ends at that. No, no, he chooses to meet us exactly in our wiring, our gifting, our bent, our idiosyncrasies, all the things that kind of make us us. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I need you to fit into this rigid box, and then you can be with me. Isn't that the lie? Don't you look at some people and like, well, it must be nice for you to be with Jesus. You like to read. Right? It's nice for you to be with Jesus because you don't have small kids running around. It must be nice for you to be with Jesus. You don't know what it's like running a business. Or it must be nice for you. And we always kind of look at other people like, oh, of course they can be with Jesus. But what I would like to propose and submit to you tonight is this idea that Jesus would love to meet with you however, wherever you are, exactly how you're wired. And the goal of Jesus is not for you just to, it's not an excuse like, well, that I guess I don't have to change because I can just find, no, no. But here's, here's the point. Jesus is not trying to transform you into someone you're not. He's trying to transform you into someone you were always meant to be. But you can't know that unless you actually know who you are. Think about that. You will not be able to connect with God to the full potential that you, 
that you can if you're unaware of how God's actually designed you. Which is one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons why we're having this Enneagram conference this weekend. It's not the tool, it's not like the best thing out there, but it's, it's a good one. It's one that's been really beneficial for me, understanding this is how God designed and wired me. It just opened up so many doors of how I have felt so connected with him this past year. Listen to what um, Augustine says. Not my, not my son. We are, a, we are a long way off from talking theology with him. Um, he did turn three on Friday, so he's making steps. But um, this is what Augustine says in his book, Confessions. How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? John Calvin in, in 1530 said, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of those two proceeds and gives birth to the other. I mean, for, for hundreds, thousands of years, the fathers of our faith have begin, begun to notice, listen, knowing God, being with God is intricately woven into you knowing yourself. Who are you? How has God wired you? So we're going to have some... We're going to have some fun here, and I'm going to, with my uneducated, unlearned self, I'm going to do my best to assign an Enneagram number to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and, uh, and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with them. So let, let's start with, and if you're new to the Enneagram, this is an awful crash course into it. Um, let's start with Martha. Uh, my guess is that Martha is a type 8. In the Enneagram, there are nine types, and this is how the type 8 is defined. Its title is the challenger. Um, the description is the powerful, dominating type, self-confident, decisive, willful, and confrontational. Does it kind of sound like Martha? I mean, the very first thing that we see is Martha comes and meets Jesus before he's even in the town with this. If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And they begin this like, dialogue back and forth and, and about resurrection and I'm the resurrection and the life and things like this. And then after she has this confrontation with him, she goes and tells her sister, you got to go see Jesus now. And then even right before they're about to get him out of the tomb, he says, she literally tells Jesus, it's, he's been dead for four days. It's going to smell. She's like challenging Jesus, right? And then they find themselves at their house throwing a party. And what does she do? She goes and rebukes him again. She's like, Jesus, Tell my sister to get in the kitchen with me and help me out. There's a bunch of stuff to do. I mean, this is, and I, I love it. This is just kind of Martha through it. She's just this, this eight, this challenger type personality. But what's interesting is uh, after talking with Josh and some of my other friends who are an eight, one of the ways that eights receive love is when they're challenged back. Not me. I'm a nine, which is a peacemaker. I'm like avoiding that. But for eights, they feel seen and known and loved when people come and they actually, when they confront, they'll confront them back. When they challenge, they'll challenge them back. So notice what Jesus does. And John's very, three times he says, these are people he loves. I always read this thinking that Martha missed it and Mary got it. And I'm starting to believe maybe Jesus was loving Martha the way she needed to be loved. Maybe this is how she received love. It was confronting her back with truth. I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha, Martha, she's chosen what's better. It's an invitation. You can do this as well. Um, 
Now, let's talk about Mary. My guess is that Mary is a type four. Type four is known as the individualist or the romantic. They're the artsy fartsy people. They're like, you know who they are, right? Like, it's pretty easy to spot a four unless you're a four and you don't think you're a four, right? But my guess is that, that Mary's a four. This is a description of a type four, the sensitive, withdrawn type, expressive, dramatic, creative, and temperamental. Uh, so you're like, well, why do you think Mary's a, a, a four? Well, we're introduced to Mary because she's at home crying. Is <laughs> our, our first introduction to her. Martha goes to confront. Mary's at home weeping. But what makes me think more that she's a four is that when she comes to Jesus, she says the exact same line that Martha does. But rather than receiving a, a, a truthful confrontation, Jesus weeps with her. Not only is she weeping, she gets Jesus to cry. And everyone around her. She's just that kind of person. And then, and then after he's raised from the dead and there's a party being thrown, her response is not to, to serve or challenge or to seek truth. It's just to fully immerse herself in this moment. She's sitting at his feet. She's wiping his, his feet with her hair, these extravagant acts. And all of a sudden, she's like, let's go get the nard. You know, so she goes and gets the, the nard. She pours it on his feet. Everyone's like, what are you doing? And for her, she's like, this is exactly what I should be doing. I'm, I'm fully expressing my love for Jesus in this moment. And other people are standing back, well, that's not reasonable. That's not logical at all. And what I find so interesting, um, Jen and I were listening to a podcast this week on the, on the type four, and they said one of the deepest wounds a type four can have is when someone looks at them and says, you're too sensitive. They look at their emotions and they said, uh, there's something wrong with you. Isn't it amazing when Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead and as, as, as Mary is clinging to his feet, weeping, that he doesn't pick her up and say, hey, Mary, I'm going to raise him from the dead. We got this. Stop crying. He just weeps with her. Why would Jesus weep with her? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense other than the fact that that's exactly what she needed in that moment. Jesus just met her as she was in that. And then in the house, as she's doing these extravagant, just outlandish acts of love and relationship in this moment. And here, what are people doing? They're like, she's out of control. And Jesus says, no, 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 she got it. This is what I want, exactly as she is. And lastly, let's talk about Lazarus. My guess is that Lazarus is a type seven. Type sevens are called the enthusiasts. Uh, the description is the busy, fun-loving type, spontaneous, versatile, distractible, and scattered. We like sevens. Sevens are the life of the party, right? It doesn't, and they could be extroverted or introverted, but sevens just have this sense of like, thing, and, and so like, why do you think Lazarus is the seven? This is, again, kind of just, you know, tolerate my humor for a second. But I'm like, of course, he's going to wait like four days. The entire village is there, and then he resurrects. He's like, hey, my people. And then he, do you notice how he comes out of the tomb? He's still wearing the grave clothes. He's like, check us out, right? I was dead. Still on my face. Like, take it off your face, Lazarus. No, no, no. And then his response to being resurrected is what? Let's have a party. Let's party. Let's have a meal, right? Like Taco Tuesday at my house, Jesus. Let's go. Like this is, and I love, and, and this, Jesus is interactions with Lazarus. He says, he just goes and parties with him. 
He's reclining with them at the table. He's not like, Lazarus, I raised you from the dead. I got to get back to work. He parties with them. He celebrates with them. I mean, how, how, how amazing is Jesus? That he'll go and, and, and a confrontational challenger, he'll meet her with truth and, and, and truth and confrontation back. With a romantic, creative, deep feeling woman, he'll meet her in her emotion. With maybe this, this fun loving, and I, I know I'm reading into this, but humor me. But with this person just wants, let's celebrate. I'm back to life. Jesus says, you're right, let's celebrate. And I've just, and as I look at over these texts that I've taught before, I've looked before, I've just come with this new appreciation of, man, Jesus, thank you that you are a God who can meet every single one of us how we are. And, I, and the reality is, there's people in this room and you've been wounded because you've been told that how you're wired is wrong. And if you really want to be a Christian, if you want to follow Jesus, then you have to mold and change and become something that you're not. Now, does Jesus change us? Absolutely. But like I said, he does not change us out of who we are. He changes us into who we truly are. Think about when he talks about the church. He doesn't say, I want one type of person looking like this, sounding like this. You know what he says? It's a body. There's fingers and toes and elbows and eyes and hairs and back and chest and legs. There's all sorts of these different things that come together and make up this image. And he, and he explicitly says that the hand should not say to the foot, I don't need you. And that's exactly what goes on. Sadly, even within the church, there's this sense of like, well, I guess if I'm going to be with Jesus, I have to be like that. And I would encourage you as you leave tonight that you would begin to take inventory of yourself and just ask them a question. It's like, well, how, when do I feel most alive? When do I feel most passionate about who gets me? And begin to start letting that translate to your relationship with God. And invite Jesus into that. Like I mentioned before, I'm, 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 I test as a type nine, which is a peacemaker. And what I used to kind of beat myself up because I like to have everything kind of perfect and like my room set and my coffee made as I go and have my quiet time with Jesus. And then I did, all of a sudden I'm realizing, but no, this is, it's when I feel at peace that I connect with God. When I go for a walk on the beach, even when I go surfing, there's a sense of that's where I sense peace. So it's where I sense God. And God's not like, no, 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 no. You need to do this, push through, things like that. No, he meets me in that and actually invites me to become a more peaceful person in the healthiest sense of the word. So I'm gonna invite uh, David to come back up. Just play some, play some music behind you know, we're going to spend some time um, in prayer in just a moment, but I just want to end with this story. I, I was thinking about how, how good God is that he would meet us where we are, and I, I began thinking of my dad. Um, my, I have three, I have two brothers and a sister, there's four of us, and, I, and you can talk to them to this day. We all kind of agree. I was always the odd man out. Um, all my siblings uh, are either in like accounting or tech, they're all excelled in school, got great grades, take AP classes, went to great colleges, and, um, and then there's me. <laughs> and I always felt off. I didn't do well in school. I, I didn't connect. But what's interesting is my dad, early on, made me start taking piano lessons. And he wouldn't let me eat dinner until I practiced for 30 minutes a day. And he didn't make any of my other siblings do that. And it frustrated the heck out of me. I'm like, come on, why me? 
But in junior high and high school, as my, as my brothers and sisters were kind of finding their niche in the world and I was feeling more and more um, lost, I started finding music. So I started like playing in bands and I led worship and I started a punk band in junior high called Possum Rebellion. It was awesome. <laughs> and uh, that turned into like, and it kept morphing into kind of punk and emo and all of a sudden I ended up in like the screamo band by the time I was out of high school. And I remember my, my dad, who, who's like my brothers and sisters and is a lawyer and very educated and very academic. And I remember one of my first shows in my punk band, and I had drawn this cartoon sketch of my band. And without my knowing it, my dad had taken that image, took it to a shop, and made T-shirts of it. And he like shows up at this like basement church show with like 20 kids there, just like totally like, ready to rock out. And like, and, I, and he walks in wearing it, and like, I'm like kind of embarrassed. I'm like, that's not punk rock, dad. Like. You can't just wear a shirt with my face on it. (laughs) And this is the other part of me. I'm like, I know you don't get anything that's going on here. You don't like the music, how loud it is, the atmosphere, but you're here. And as our band progressed and we played bigger shows in different venues, we got louder and I started screaming in my band, all these things. I remember remember driving in cars with my dad. He's like, so um, why do you do this? Like He was just like... (laughs) To this day, I think just totally confused. But like, I kid you not, even as I graduated high school, I remember going on tour, playing our last show, and I remember my dad showed up in the back of the room with my band's T-shirt on. And this is my earthly father, who frankly probably didn't understand me and didn't get me at a pretty significant level, but because he loved me, was there. But how amazing that we serve a God that not only is there for us and loves us, but actually gets us. He's there. He's with us tonight. As you are, as you're bent, as you wired you, because he's the one who made you like that. Do you hear me? Stop wishing that God would change you into another person so it'd be easier for you to connect and start asking, Lord, you made me like this. How do I find you? How can I find you now? In this this season of my life, in my wiring, how you've made me, I want to be with you. you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we thank you. Like in Revelations, it, it says that you stand at the door and knock. And that those who let you in, you will come in and eat with them. Lord, thank you that there are ones and threes and nines. Thank you that there are sanguines and phlegmatics. Thank you that there are dominants and influencers and there's ENFTJ. I mean, there's whatever language we're using, we're very different. Lord, thank you that you are the one God who can connect with all of us. And Lord, we desperately want to be with you, but we thank you that you're the one who made that possible and you're the one who went the distance to be with us. So we welcome you. I pray that we would help us know ourselves so that we can know you better, receive your love better, and in turn, love others. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.